Before thee let my cry come near, O Lord, true to thy word, teach me before thee. We are thankful that you are able to join us today as Pastor Mark Robinette preaches another sermon at Foundation Church here in Mount Sterling, Ohio. If this message is an encouragement to you, and we pray that it will be, please consider taking the time to go to www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org and let us know. Thank you, and may the Lord richly bless you through His Word. Let my lips thy praise confess, yea, of thy word my tongue would sing, yea, Greetings this Lord's Day in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. It's a beautiful day today, isn't it? The weather has changed. God doesn't change though, amen? Not only does God not change, but we change and in in fact we need to change. Everybody say, we need to change. We as individual Christians are the lively and living and changing stones of God's great dwelling place. The Holy Spirit is sanctifying us day by day as He has been doing the same in His glorious church for 2,000 years. Washing us in the water of His Word from our many blemishes and making us holy in deed and in truth. We are and should ever be simper. Reformanda, always reforming, always being reformed into the image of Christ by the Word of God. Amen? Amen. Uh, The psalmist said this in Psalm 102, and you will hear echoes of the same doctrine in his midst. He talks about the changing and uh, frail nature of man and the strength of an unchanging God. Psalm 102, David said, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come unto thee. Hide not thy face from me in the day when I am in trouble, and incline thine ear unto me in the day when I answer and answer me when I call. For my days are consumed like smoke, and my bones are burned as a hearth, and my heart is smitten and withered like the grass, so that I forget even to eat my bread. By reason of the voice of my groaning, my bones cleave to my skin, and I am like the pelican of the wilderness, and I am like the owl of the desert. I watch, and I am as a sparrow alone upon the housetop. And my enemies reproach me all the day. And they that are mad against me are sworn against me. For I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. Because of thine indignation and thy wrath, for thou hast lifted me up and cast me down. My days are like a shadow that declines, and I am like the withered grass. Be thou, O Lord, thou shall endure forever, and thy remembrance unto all generations. Thou shalt arise and have mercy upon Zion, for the time to favor her, yea, the time is set, and it will come. For thy servants take pleasure in her stones, and favor the dust thereof, so the heathen shall fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth 
shall glory in thee. When the Lord shall build up Zion, he shall appear in glory. He will regard the prayer of the destitute and not despise their prayer. This shall be written for the generation to come and the people which shall be created shall praise the Lord. For he hath looked down from the height of his sanctuary. From heaven did the Lord behold the earth to hear the groaning of the prisoner, to loose those that are appointed to death, to declare the name of the Lord in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem. When the kingdoms are gathered together in the kingdoms to serve the Lord, He weakened my strength in the way. He shortened my days. And I said, Oh my God, take me not away in the midst of my days, for the years are throughout all generation. Of old hast thou laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, but you shall endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment, as a vesture shall thou change them, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same. Everybody say, thou art the same. And thy years shall have no other end. The children of the servants shall continue, and their seed shall be established in thee forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you that you don't change. We are in a constant state of flux in, as families uh, and even as our little church. There will be those that come and go and, and there will be governments that come and go. But in the midst of all of these things, you are ever constant, ever the same, unyielding to time and circumstance. I pray, Lord God, as we come before you today, your people, that you would blow upon us. And may we would wave before you like the grass. That we as the flowers turn to the sun would turn to you and hunger for your light. Lord, feed us from heaven. Make us like you. Lord, raise us up. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. remain standing as I read for you my text is short today uh, my sermon today is called Semper Reformanda always reforming my text is from Romans chapter 12 starting in verse 1 Romans 12 1 I beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of God that you present your bodies everybody say bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. Everybody say, transformed. transformed. By the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace that is given to me, that every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man, the measure of faith. Let us pray. Lord God, we pray today that this would be one more Lord's Day where you transformed us. That maybe like the growth of the trees in our yard or even the growth of our children, even though it is difficult to see day to day, eventually we see the maturity and the growth. Help us, O oh God, to continue to grow, to not stagnate or to feel as though we have arrived, but to plead with you to change us and to make us more like you. Lord, we long for your word. Speak to us today and change us by it. 
In Christ's name we pray and all the church said. Amen. You may be seated. All right, now, Foundation Church kids, you listen to me? All right, what games did you guys play last uh, last week outside the church? You guys remember? Anybody? You guys played some games, right? Now, it might seem like a silly question to ask, but I have a purpose. It was on a Lord's Day, not very different from today, that a small group of children played. And their play changed the world. Isn't that amazing? That the games that they played on a Sunday after worship changed the world. Would any of you imagine that anything you're going to do today as you're playing out in the field or, you know, shooting each other or whacking each other in the head or or kicking a ball or, or throwing a Frisbee, that something you could do could change the world? Is that, could you imagine that? But it did. Now, you may not know about this at all, so since we're at the risk of forgetting it, I'm going to tell a story today, all right? Nearly 1,700 years ago, say 1,700 years ago. That's a really long time, okay? That's, that's a lot of time. There was, in the magnificent Egyptian port of Alexandria on the Mediterranean Sea, a group of kids... Now, yes, this was the very same city which had been founded 600 years earlier and named after the powerful, undaunted Greek conqueror, Alexander the Great. That's why they called it Alexandria. This same city was the home of the most famed library, the library of Alexandria. And this uh, port city had a harbor, and on the edge of this harbor was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And for nearly 1,500 years, it stood as the tallest man-made object in the world until the, the uh, Eiffel Tower was built in Paris in the 1800s. Can you believe this? Anybody know what it was? It was the lighthouse of Alexandria. This man-made structure, three to 500 feet tall, uh, its light could be seen, they said, for 35 miles out to sea. And invading ship sails uh, could be uh, set fire uh, with a lens that came from the top of this, this incredible thing. In the harbor, back 1,700 years ago, this, could you imagine living near something like this, you know? But in the same harbor, maybe even in the shadow of this edifice that we talk about today that uh, was around in the world all the way until the medieval times before an earthquake took it down. Uh, these kids played and they were there in this very harbor and they were playing a game. Um, they were mixed, mixed groups. Some of the children were Christians and there were some pagans. This was a Greek city. And uh, it was under the rule of the Roman Empire. And it was right around uh, 300 uh, when, this, when this happened, right? A little after, after 300. And so they were playing a game. You know what they were playing? They were playing church. Anybody ever see their kids play church? You know? I remember years ago some of the little ones, uh, would, you know, and they're, pre- they're preaching or they're pretending to be, to be me or, you know, whatever. And so this group was out in the water. What do you think they were playing? What part of the church service do you think they were playing out in the water? 
They're playing baptism. And so uh, some of them, actually one of the kids kind of thought this would be a fun way to get my pagan buddies uh, baptized. And, and so he's out there and he's baptizing them and he's, you know, he, this isn't like a joke necessarily to him, but it, it looked like play and, and some of the kids there believed that they were playing around. But one of them wasn't really playing that much. So while this was going on, um, where they had earlier before this had attended worship and probably had attended worship at the cathedral nearby where the bishop of Alexandria was. Now, what's funny, and it'll be easy for you to remember because his name is real memorable, real easy. His name was Alexander, okay? So he was Alexander the Bishop of Alexandria, you know, I'm sure there were some jokes about that, but so he was there and he had just finished service and had taken part in holy worship and he's preparing to have a Sabbath meal and invites some very important people are over at his house and he's at his window and he goes to the window and he looks out and he looks over the harbor, Steve, and he's like, man, what a beautiful city. You know, this is like one of the most incredible busiest influential cities beautiful port and he's looking at the water and he's like looking at it and reveling and he's getting ready to turn away and go back to where his guests are gathering and he notices dizzy kids and he's like what are they doing you know and i'm not exactly sure what they were doing maybe they were picking up water and they were pouring it over their head or whatever there was whatever it was he could see was going on the bishop says i don't know if i like this so he kind of puts his dinner plans on hold and he, and you might wonder how I know the details of this. You can read about this from a historian named Rufinius. He wrote about this and Rufinius ended up becoming a very close friend of this boy uh, that was actually involved in this. So the Bishop of Alexander, he calls the kids in and, and he, he says, what are you doing? Don't you understand that holy worship is sacred and uh, you can't just be mocking the things of God. And, and, and so all of the kids there, the pagans included, they're like, it was the bishop's fault. And he's thinking, hey, I'm the bishop. And they're like, no, 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 we elected him bishop. And so there's this little boy, you know, he's a teenage little boy. Like we elected him bishop and he's the one that wanted to baptize Saul. So here he is. He's, he, you know, he's like, uh, and so, so he goes, all right. If you are the bishop and they have elected you, tell me how you baptize. Well, this little boy goes through and he shows the bishop of Alexandria how he baptizes. And the bishop goes, that's exactly like it says to do it in the book of church order. And he said, sir, we're not mocking anything. And the bishop was deeply touched by this. And he said, I want a a kid who knows his stuff like that and who's this serious. I want to get to know him better. You know who that boy was? That boy was Athanasius. He says, I need to speak to your parents. And he goes and he talks to him. He said, this boy has theological understanding beyond his years. And, and even in his play, he brings glory to God by literally being able to articulate in Latin the perfect way to baptize. There, there are, I know bishops that, you know, are 80 years old that don't know how to do it as good as this kid. That, that, that's a little bit of hyperbole. He didn't say that. But he encouraged the parents, would you, you know, would you allow this boy to be prepared for the service of the church? And so he took an interest in him and he entered into, uh, entered into uh, education and all kinds of stuff that, that, that prepared him for a life of ministry. Now this day of play would not only change this boy's life, it would forever become the beginning of the building 
of a great pillar of the church of Jesus Christ. In fact, for this man has so many names that he is called, but one of them, he is called the father of orthodoxy. He is called the pillar of the faith. This boy would become Athanasius of Alexandria, bishop of the great city where he grew up, defender of the faith against vile heresy, the constant target of Satan and his followers. He would pastor for 45 years and he would spend 17 of those 45 years in exile. He would be deposed five times by four emperors and he would go on to be the champion of the canon of the books of our Bible and doctor of the church who best defended and defined the beautiful doctrine of the Holy Trinity. This man is no ordinary man. This man had no small effect upon the church. But he became a champion for the cause of Christ again and again and again as his enemies, the enemies of the cross, tried to take him down from his post. And this would cause him to finally be called Athanasius Contramundum. Athanasius against the whole world. And you know, when I learned this years ago, that this name was called it. I thought it was more hyperbole, Steve. It was just kind of like he faced a really bad situation. And so it was him against the world. You know, he's a tough guy. No, no. Athanasius was literally, everybody say literally, against the whole world alone. He, what he did stood for righteousness and godliness. And in fact, there were none. There was no bishop who would publicly acknowledge the truth that he acknowledged. None in the world. And he affirmed it and pounded his fist. And he said, no, no, no. And in the end, he prevailed. He's a warrior. He's a warrior. Kids, I'm telling you, I have encouraged people. I know people are having babies. If you want to name a kid something stout, something amazing, something more incredible than I really understood until I began this journey of learning about him, name your child Athanasius. Now I'm talking about the life of Athanasius today because this is October. And what do we do in this church every October? We celebrate Reformation. We celebrate the great Protestant Reformation. In fact, the church this year celebrates the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing his 95 Thesis to his own church door in Wittenberg, Germany. This single act many credit as the brick uh, knocked from the dike of the Catholic Church which opened the floodgates of the great Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation was a great time of pain and suffering and persecution. For a generation who said to the heresies of the day, this far and no further, to those who had erred from the faith, who had gone after filthy lucre, and by their ungodly lives had denied the faith of which now they had become the leaders. This month we will remember what courage and patience it took for our brothers and sisters to wrest the Christian faith from the hands of so many evil men that love power and position more than the Word of God. They wandered about, as it were, in sheep's clothing, cold, hungry, naked, and friendless, so that men and women might freely read the Word of God for themselves and worship God as their conscience dictate, so that we can read it and we can know it. They did this for us. 
when our flag of the United States is raised and uh, a tear fills, fills our eye and patriotism swells in our breast because men fought and died for our country, that is well. But when we hear about men of faith like this, it should cause our heart to swell much larger. It should cause our pride to boost much higher. It should cause, cause the bulwarks of our life to strengthen in such a way where we say, no, indeed, this far and no further. We will not move from God's Word. We will not be influenced by the spirit of the age and the church that has gone astray and gone after the things that our church went, uh, went away and strayed from back at the time of the Reformation. I chose my text from Romans 12 because the passage there embodies the crushed human spirit cast to the ground like a seed that brings forth glorious fruit. The Apostle Paul pleaded with the Roman Christians these words meant well for us today. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable. Will any of us even know what it means to do that? For us, it's more figurative. Will we get the opportunity to stand up and literally throw our bodies in front of the fast-moving train of heresy? Or will we put ourselves in harm's way that others might have freedom? Will it just be, oh, you know, I'm not going to have that Reese's Pieces bag today. I'm going to just give that to Jesus. I'm going to fast all, you know, processed food today. You know, I'm going to only drink uh, cow's milk that's unpasteurized, you know, whatever. Uh, our, our sacrifice uh, is so paltry oftentimes that we see, oh, we're just, we're, lit, we're giving ourselves to Jesus today. When I cut the, the, the snicker bar in half, I took the smaller piece. I've laid down my life for my brother today. Paul pleaded with them to not be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That we might prove what is good and acceptable in the perfect will of God. Athanasius, I'm telling you, was a man who did this. Paul said, For I say through the grace given to me that every man that is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. This is at the crux of it all. When we think of ourselves and our life and our comfort and our needs and our pain and our difficulty is at the center of God's universe, we err greatly. And when we see all of those things are really our reasonable service that we offer the Lord, that it is not like we've done something great or we've done something incredible, but we've done what is required of us. It's our reasonable service. Oftentimes we do something for God and we wait around for someone to notice us and to see us and to praise us. And, they, you know, they don't know what I do. If they only knew the sacrifices I made. Really? And we don't even know. We don't even we don't live in a time where we even know what it is to sacrifice, to suffer, to fight foes. You know, they talk about us on the news. They pass a law that really doesn't touch us or find its way into our congregation. What if they came like they did with Athanasius with armed guards into the church and remove him to exile him? He has to hide where they lied about him. And they, they, they trial after trial of his, his life was filled. This good godly man's life was filled standing before defending himself against lies that they brought up because they could not conquer the truth that he stood for. Athanasius lived a thousand years 
before the Great Reformation, but he embodied a mantra adopted by the church and worthy of our attention today. Everybody say, Semper Reformanda. This is Latin for always being reformed. Now, the world today that has gone astray, they would like it to say, oh, well, that just means we're always changing. And so, so when political correctness changes or when we learn better, when science teaches us that God's Word isn't true, we've got to roll with it. We've got to always be changing. No! The, the mantra of the Reformation that came in this statement, Semper Reformata, which came after the Reformation, was saying we should always be coming more Reformed, with the capital R. We should always be Reformed, uh, as it says here, the longer way, always being Reformed by the Word of God. Everybody say, Reformed by the Word of God. Just as individuals are always being changed, we use the word though, sanctification, to denote that it's not just a change. It's not this we want to get older. We want to get more mature. We want to have new hairstyles and new clothes. No, we want to be changed into His likeness. We want to be sanctified and set apart. We want to become more holy and more like Him. Amen? In that same way, the church, this happens with the church. The church is a living, growing thing that is ever being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Think of it. People live and die, but the church, formed by the host of God's elect, lives on from generation to generation, from century to century and millennia to millennia. It's amazing to me that this church that Jesus said He would build upon the rock of the truth of who He was would not die, but it would prevail. And that the kingdoms of this world would become the kingdoms of God. And there, this is happening every single day. When America is forgotten, when the Roman Empire we know now is forgotten, when no one is coming and offering sacrifices to Woden or uh, worshiping ISIS anymore, which they are not, unless some crazy isolated you know novelty. But when those things change and those things go away, the church, as we see, continues to grow, continues to fill the earth, continues to conquer the kingdoms of this world. From the time of Christ in the first 300 years uh, after Christ, the church endured unthinkable persecution and suffering from the Roman, uh, ungodly Roman emperors, uh, from Nero to Diocletian and uh, all kinds of uh, ungodly men came against the, the church. And these men tortured and killed our brothers and sisters and, and chased them all over the world and, and they had to hide out and, and, and they, they suffered uh, eat, being eaten by animals in the Colosseum and they, they suffered this difficulty through their lives. But about the time uh, of, of the birth of Athanasius in, in the city of Alexandria, this Roman port uh, had become one of the most influential uh, places on earth. And he was born there sometime between 293 and 298. Some of the confusion about his birth, and I thought this was funny, it's a little aside. They're confused about the time of his birth because the things that he did, they say no one could do that at that age. They're not really, they know, they, they, they know when they said he was born, but they're like, it can't be. He's too little. He's too young. No one that young could be that wise, but I'm not really sure that it's not so that God oftentimes takes a weak vessel uh, and uses him for his glory to bring uh, the, the wisdom of this world to the foolishness that it is. After his encounter, which I told you about earlier, of him uh, playing uh, with his friends in, uh, in the harbor of Alexandria, he began to work for the bishop. Uh, and he was kind of like a, 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 an errand boy that ran around and did little things for him. And eventually he became uh, 
Bishop Alexander's secretary. Alexander could see that this young boy was gifted in thought and his words. And he said, you know, he needs to go to school. And so he went. He became fluent in several languages, including Greek. And since the New Testament was originally written in Greek, and well-known Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint was widely available. It gave him a great advantage in understanding God's Word and study. His study uh, paid off for the kingdom of God. Kids, as you are learning, you're not just learning to get by, to, to be schooled at home. You're learning for a reason. Why do we, why do we teach our children to read? So they can know the Word of God. Why do they want to excel in academics? So that we can bolster the kingdom of God. When we raise our children up to say, Oh, no, we want you to do this so that you can provide for a family. If that's not bad, but it certainly shouldn't be first. Uh, I want you to be set. I want you to be comfortable. I want you to, to, to be able to, to do things. Folks, God is not short of money. God is not poor. God is not unable to meet the needs. And yeah, sometimes I get confused about this. I even feel that, oh, I've got to provide the needs of the people in Myanmar for God to always to remind me, you have never provided the needs of the people in Myanmar. I have loved you and been kind enough to you to let you be the one who brings it there. And that's a gift to you. He could send coins in the mouths of the many fish that live on their shore over there. He could send other people, but it's a gift. And it should be a blessing, not a burden for me to be able to do that. And so if we raise up our children and their their worry and their thought is to seek after the things that the Gentiles seek after, I think we will raise a generation that does not love God as it should. We not saying that we shouldn't want to learn, but the main reason that we should learn is to read the Word of God, to know the Word of God, and to perpetuate the Word of God in the kingdom in the church. That we know what it is, and then when they, when when things go awry and when things err, we go no, no, we will not be a part of that. Intellectually, morally, and politically, Alexandria epitomized the ethnically diverse Greco-Roman world even more than Rome and Constantinople. Athanasius recounts being a student as well as being educated uh, by the martyrs of the great and last persecution of Christianity that that, uh, were done by the pagans who were then trying to rule in Rome. His teachers who taught him during this time, many of them were killed. And uh, what this did was this strengthened his resolve and his dedication towards his merciful Savior. He loved to learn and he loved his professors and to watch them suffer and die for Christ would ever change him. When he returned home, the Bishop of Alexander invited Athanasius to be to continue on with his work at, as secretary. He had been well educated. The historian Zosman wrote that he was now, quote, versed in grammar and rhetoric and had already, while still a young man, and before reaching the place of bishop, gave proof to those who dwelt with him of his wisdom and his acumen. In fact, he wrote a theological work that remains unmasked. I want you to listen. Athanasius wrote something. What he wrote as a young man would be a bulwark against the warlike heresy that would assault the church his entire life. But this heresy had not even come up yet. When, when, I, when I first read this book, it's called um, Against the Heathen on the Incarnation. And this book is an incredible work by Athanasius. And if you, if you haven't read it, if you're not a theology person and you haven't read it, you're, you're missing something here. It's eloquent, it's beautiful, it's incredible. But the most amazing thing, Bill, I thought it was written in response to the Arian heresy. But it wasn't. It was written before 
the Arian heresy. It was written uh, by a young man who gave his life to the love of the Word of God. And he wrote this while he uh, was unencumbered with so many duties and, and difficulties. And so when the enemy came against him, he took this work of his and he began to pound against his enemies and crush them beneath his feet. And eventually over time, he brought them to powder and they are forgotten today except by the fact their memory is only that they were heretics. Using his education, he repeatedly quoted Plato and Aristotle, but he did it in an orthodox way. He began to understand how that reason and thought were important, that we are to worship God not just with our heart, but with our mind as well. He was familiar with the theories of theological schools like Neoplatonism, and ultimately Athanasius would modify these things and uh, they would come into the school of Alexandria themselves. Um, and they would move away from the principles of a guy named Origen who taught that basically everything we read is kind of an allegory. And he would say, no, there's practical application for our life. In fact, Athanasian uh, quotes Homer more than once in his writings as because he understood that some of these men were very wise and very great in their, in their thought. During his later exile with no access to a copy of the Bible, uh, Athanasius could quote from memory every verse of the Old Testament that referred to the Godhead without missing one. He could tell you chapter and verse and word for word and quote these. The combination of his scriptural study and of his Greek learning was characteristic uh, and became characteristic of, his, of the school of Alexandria later on. As he worked as a secretary and he reached mature age, uh, he became a deacon in the year 319. He worked at the side of his beloved mentor, uh, this man who was the kind of man who would take the time with little kids playing on the shore, was known for his gentility and his kindness to, to people. And he, working with Athanasius, they, they formed a bond and a friendship that people around them begin to admire and to love. And they say, wow, man, what is a, what's a beautiful thing when men dwell together in unity? Look how this man honors his bishop and how he serves him. And, and, and even though God was raising up Athanasius to be greater than his teacher, he stayed and served him as a deacon in the church. He worked at his side and... Uh, this short time of peace and beauty would serve to sustain Athanasius through a life of warfare for Christ. I did not fully understand, as I told you before, why this little man, whose original nickname was the Black Dwarf. Some of you uh, people here that have a little darker skin than others might try to think in your mind, where is Alexandria? Everybody say, Alexandria is in Africa. Say, Alexandria is in Africa. So what color was Athanasius? Do you think he was uh, as, as white as we are? Or do you think he might have been a little darker? See, skin color doesn't define us. Amen? We may be black or white or yellow or three shades of purple. It doesn't really matter. Athanasius was God's man. And he was little too. He wasn't a big guy. We got a few uh, little guys around here. I got one of myself that uh, may end up being the littlest guy that we got around here. But he was known as the Black Dwarf. This was not a nickname of... of uh, this was what the people that made fun of him called him the Black Dwarf. Um, but this small of stature, dark-skinned man would ultimately earn the moniker Athanasius against the world. It was not one controversy though and one difficulty that earned him this title. 
it was a lifetime. I thought it was he battled with Arius and he overcame him at the Nicene Council and it was him against the world. Folks, that was the very beginning of a life of such unparalleled difficulty that if I took the time to try to tell it to you, uh, 10 minutes into it, you would be wincing and going, no, I, I don't think we have time for this. I mean, don't you think Mark's done preaching now? I mean, seriously, I can't believe that it's even possible that he's even still talking. And I would only be on the first of his many trials. He went through so many things that were so unbelievable that it hurt me to read them, thinking about what a sissy I am and what what bandwidth we have that is like that in comparison to a guy like this it was in 325 that Athanasius went with Alexander the bishop to the first council of Nicaea and Athanasius was already recognized as a theologian and a man who uh, despised pleasure and wealth and had given himself over to the kingdom of God he was an obvious choice people saw that he would be the obvious choice to replace the aging Alexander and people began to despise him because, see, the place of the bishopric of Alexandria was a powerful position. And these people have, oh, I'll be ready for this. And all like, this young upstart has gained favor with the bishop. And, oh, no, he's going to get in there and he's going to mess everything up. And for the political reasons and for wealth, they hated him. Not because he was, wasn't better than them, but because they wanted their will to be done. But God would have his holy will. Arius shows up at the Nicene Council, which was called together to settle this problem. Arius had basically uh, put forward the theology that Jesus was a created being, that he was less than the Father, that he was not equal to the Father. And this is why we have creeds like the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, because this doctrine became so ugly and disgusting and divisive in the church that the Roman emperors who had now embraced Christianity, they wanted it to stop. And so they called together the council at Nicaea. So here we have this young man, this, this deacon, who's not one of the church leaders at the elbow of the Bishop of Alexandria going, tell him that, tell him this. And he threw out a word, this word called consubstantial. And he says, we've got to include it. He's equal. He's God. Very God of very God, right? He is not subservient. He is not created. He is, by Him were all things made. This is the, He is the Creator, Jesus Christ. By Him were all things made and not was anything made that wasn't made. And so people knew that these words that uh, the Bishop of Alexander were putting forth, they were around to notice that Athanasius was kind of telling him uh, the things and guiding him. Athanasius was a more uh, uh, articulate when it came to his theology than Alexander had been. And because of this, and at this council, they ruled this. Now, the opposition, even in the city and among theologians around, they had all agreed with Arius. But because of Athanasius' wisdom and his knowledge of the Scripture, the, the formulation of faith was drawn up known as the Nicene Creed. This man is responsible for the creed that we say every week. While still a deacon in Alexandria, uh, Alexandria under Alexander's care, Athanasius became acquainted with some of the solitaries of the Egyptian desert. And in particular, a man by the name of Anthony the Great. His life... Uh, it was the next thing that Athanasius decided to write about. He decided to write a biography of a man who lived as a hermit in the desert, who prayed to God and who fasted constantly and who fought the devil. 
And this man inspired Athanasius and he, and, and he saw in him something that he wanted. He wanted someone to be singularly given over to, and I'm not saying that, you know, the most holy thing in the world is not to be married or to live alone in a cave somewhere, but there was something that this man Anthony had that made Athanasius hunger for a deeper walk and understanding of God. And him spending time with this man changed him forever and prepared him. Because what would happen to him? But he would be exiled and he would have to hide and he would have to run. And where would he be? He would be alone. And so he wrote this book about him, which in fact was the most popular thing that Athanasius did during his lifetime. Everyone would read about the story of this man known as Anthony the Great or Anthony the Hermit or St. Anthony. As the gentle Alexander, though, lay on his deathbed near the end of his life, he called Athanasius, who had run. When he saw that his... Uh, that the bishop was dying, Athanasius hid. And why did he hide? Because he knew that he was going to ask him to, to be his replacement. And he said, I'm just, I'm a 30 year old guy. I, I, I'm not ready for this. And, and these people are going to hate me and they're going to go after me. And, and he hid. And, and Alexander sent for him, bring him here. Bring him here. It, one of the historians says, when the bishops of the church assembled to elect their new patriarch, the whole Catholic population gathered around the church holding up their hands to heaven and they started chanting, give us Athanasius, give us Athanasius, give us Athanasius. They had seen the beauty of his knowledge and his love for God and his love for people in his life. They had read about his love for St. Anthony, the, the hermit of the Egyptian desert, and he had, they'd seen a, uh, a love for God that inspired them. He told them, he said, no, no, no. He said, I could never replace the bishop of Alexandria. He's such a wonderful man and such a godly man. I'm just a young man. I, I, I should never do this. The clergy and the people were determined to have him as their bishop. The patriarch of Alexandria refused to accept any excuses and at length argued with him as he was dying. You must do this. You must do this. And in 326... He passed on the bishopric to his, his pupil, Athanasius. Athanasius began to, uh, <clears throat> to serve and, and there was a council formed at the, his replacement. And the council uh, was used to decry once again Arianism. And uh, as he... <clears throat> He didn't realize this would be the beginning of a battle. And there's no way on earth I can go into this. But he battled like you would not believe, uh, Steve, for 45 years. He would, he would have a little time of peace. They would come against him. They would fight him. Um, some of the things they said are just mind-blowing, what they did. Um, I'll, I'll read to you what I wrote. If I simply listed the issues that assaulted the church over Athanasius in the next part of his life, you would be so tired of hearing them, you would beg me to quit. Okay, so I'm not going to do it. But if any man that I have known or read about fully understands what Paul wrote and fully lived it out and embodied it in Ephesians 4, what we were trying to memorize. You guys, you remember what we were trying to memorize? He said, I have learned what? In whatsoever state I am? To be content, right? He said, I've learned how to abound. I've learned how to have nothing. I've learned how to be abased. I've learned how to suffer one. I've learned how both to be full and empty. This was the life of Athanasius. His life was filled with constantly being falsely accused of murder, immorality, 
greed. In fact, I'll tell you one story. They, they decided these people were way more evil than the Democratic Party uh, when they come against somebody, okay? You talk about scorched earth. You know what they did? They, first they came and they said, we accuse this man. And they brought seven people who were bishops. We accuse Athanasius, and this was all political, of murdering a guy named Arsenius. And not only did he murder him, but they took him. And uh, Athanasius is a person that believes secretly in black magic. And so he cut the hands off of Arsenius. And he used them in magic with the devil. And in fact, we had the hand. And they opened the box and had the severed hand of a man. And everyone goes, oh my goodness. I mean, now, can you imagine any, you know, we, we, we deal with guys who get taken before presbytery for bad things. Okay. But could you imagine seven other church leaders bringing a severed hand in a box and saying, you cut the hand off because you like worship the devil. Like, like, really? So, so this was pretty serious. I mean, you'd think that would take him down. Well, what's funny is he had found out about this and he had heard that they're carrying the severed hand. They mailed the severed hand to the emperor and the emperor goes, a severed hand. I can't believe it. This is, this is what Athanasius done. He's cut off this hand and he's, he's, he's black, you know, he's into the, the magical arts. How horrible. And of course, then he condemns Athanasius not knowing anything, right? So they send these people, they're going to have a trial. In the meantime, Athanasius is like, this is the craziest thing I've ever heard. Like, Arsenius is still alive. I, I think I know where he is. And so they go and they find the guy who'd been hiding out. Now this, of course, was before the internet and, you know, newspapers and television and video and all that stuff. So, so it was easy to sort of accuse you of something and not know. So they go get the guy and in the middle of while they're showing this hand and the people are gasping, they go, well, Athanasius asks him, do you, do you have the other hand? And he goes, I do. And so he's got the guy behind this cloak and he pulls out and they go, oh. and he's like, not only do I have that hand, but you know how you say the other hand, I got the other hand. So the other hand, and then they pull it back and then the whole guy's there. He said, in fact, I've got the whole guy. And the guy was alive and he admitted that they had basically paid him off. Well, you would think that would be enough, Steve, right? To discredit them. They were already ready with, if he overcame that with something they're like, but you know what? You treated, you mistreated this woman and you attacked her and did advances on her. And they bring her forth. Now these guys are all from out of town. And so they hired somebody and they hired this low living woman to show up and go, he groped me and touched me and did all these horrible things. Well, the people that were there, the locals all knew the woman as the basest sort of woman on earth who never has even been near him before. And they all start laughing so much so that, that the, the laugh get, got crazy, you know. So these guys were ready with a third accusation. So, you know, now he's a killer. Uh, now he's a sex maniac. And now he's greedy. And so they said, you know, he has been controlling uh, the grain and who sells and buys. And he's been doing this as a political move. Well... This upset Constantine, who was the emperor at the time, and Constantine used that to remove him from his position. Now, I'm telling you about one of about 50 such assaults on his life. Can you imagine this? He ran for his life many times. At one point, guys, he lived in the tomb of his dead father for five months, hiding out. But what would happen is, is a council would change and an emperor would die and a pope would die. And these guys would revisit it and, and, and everyone would say, this man is a godly man. These people are crazy. And he would get re-put in and re-put out and re-put in and re-put out. Over 45 years, 
17 years he was exiled. They moved him out to an island somewhere. They put him on this place and he would be there. But during this time, he continued to write. He continued to study and he continued to send letters to his church like the Apostle Paul. And his letters were called festal letters and he would send these letters. And and even though the church uh, and these people had deposed him and excommunicated him and done all these things, they would still receive this letter because he knew how to do something they didn't know how to do. Back before the internet and science and calculators, it was hard for people to figure out when Easter was going to be, okay? Because it's, it's calculated through the, your knowledge of the Old Testament and your knowledge of planetary motions and, and, and lunar cycles, okay? And this was all very complicating and no one could figure this out, but guess who knew all about it? He did. And so he would send this festal letter and this letter would come out. And in the letter, it would tell them when Lent was going to be and when Passover was going to be and when Easter was going to be. And it would tell them this and they would receive them. And then he would write them a little note telling them how much he loved them and loved the Lord and encouraged them. But even this, he, they, this happened every year, even when he was in exile and they said he was a bad guy. They're like, well, he is a bad guy and he is in exile, but he is the only one that knows how to do this. And so for all of the whole church during that time, all over the world, Steve, he did Determine when they were going to celebrate Easter and was able to continue to minister to them through these letters. Isn't this kind of interesting? And so um, he was in, he was out, he was on trial, he was exonerated, he was deposed, he was reinstated with the support one time of a hundred bishops who stood and said he was a good man. At other times he stood alone. At one point uh, he was truly alone against the world. And it was said that every bishop had this Arianism, I thought, which went away at Nicaea. It didn't. That was these guys were the guys fighting him his whole life. And at near the end of his life, it appeared that there was not one bishop alive on earth that held to the belief of Orthodox Christian faith. He was the alone man. He was the only bishop who would publicly say that Christ was equal with God. That's where Athanasius Contramundum comes from. He was literally against the whole world. But a pope died. And in 366, and a new pope who happened to be a godly, righteous man named Pope Damascus. Historians tell us he was strong in character and holy life. And he knew that Athanasius was a godly man who understood the scriptures. So he convened a council and he said, hey, unless you believe in the words of the council of Nicaea, you cannot be a bishop in the realm. And they all submitted. And that was the death of this thing that had plagued him. But that was 45 years in coming. Could you imagine being someone to live through these kind of battles? We, we, we struggle through things and, you know, difficulties and we're ready to quit. But he didn't. His 40-year battle with Arius and his heresy was finally won. In his last, one of his last, or in his, one of his, his letters... He did what is considered to be the greatest thing for Christianity that has ever been done. And it was done in this little simple letter that he sent to tell them what time they could have their Easter. Do you guys know about this? So he sent him a letter. This is my final thing I'm going to tell you. In 367, as he was an old man, he was getting close to the end of his life. It, he, at, the custom was at Epiphany each year... After the 12 days of Christmas, the bishops of Alexandria would write a letter in which the dates of Lent and Easter were fixed, and thus all other festivals of the church would, would revolve around those. 
The letters were used to discuss other matters in general. Athanasius wrote 45 of these letters. 13 have survived today. The 39th has been reconstructed by scholars from Greek, Syriac, and Coptic fragments. And it contains a list of the books of the Old and the New Testament. Did you ever wonder who decided which books were in and which books were out? This letter by Athanasius is used and credited as being the seal of the canon of the church and the reason why we accept certain books into the New Testament and the reason that we don't. And so this letter would seem like a simple thing. He wasn't even writing to, uh, to do this very thing, but he listed the books and in the books they be- this became uh, the standard. After returning to Alexandria in 366, Athanasius spent his final years repairing the damage done in the church during the years of violence, dissent, and exile. He resumed writing and preaching, uh, and he was undisturbed, and characteristically it emphasized the view of the incarnation, which had been defined at Nicaea, and this began to be the prevailing thought around all of the world. And on May the 2nd, everybody say May the 2nd, 373, having consecrated one of his presbyters as his successor athanasius died peacefully in his bed now he wasn't surrounded by controversy but around by clergy and faithful supporters and in the end he was exonerated as a godly and holy man and he was able to die in peace the spirit which he embodied the always reforming to the word of god semper reformanda was lived out by athanasius like i have never seen any other and as I read about him, it inspired me. It inspired me to work hard. It inspired me to understand God's word. It inspired me to not get worn out. Whether you know my 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 trials may come from different ways and difficulties, but it gives me the energy to say, "I want the church to be lovely. I want it to be beautiful. I want it to be filled with godliness and holiness, and I want our church to glorify God." And may all of us be in, as individuals be reforming, be changing. Be looking and say, hey, how am I seeing God's word wrong? How am I not understanding God's word? And how can I be fit for the master's service? Let us pray. Lord, we pray today, Lord, that you would give us this powerful spirit that you gave our brothers and sisters of the Great Reformation that lived, as we know, Lord, in your servant Athanasius. And many other great men of God throughout time and women of God. Lord, I pray that the children today, as they hear the story of the kids playing, would remember that God sees us even when we're at play. That He sees us and even though we may see ourselves as a child playing on the Sabbath day, not making much difference, but that you may have in mind that you may be watching us and providing a way to change our lives forever. May we be glorifying you in our play in our talk, in our studies. May we want to be those who understand your word, who understand history, who love it and understand that it is your story, who recognize the wisdom, even if it comes from pagans like Aristotle and Plato, uh, that we would be able to learn like Thomas Aquinas did, that, that we are people to love God with our minds and not our hearts only, and that we would be people of great courage and faith, that we would be warriors who would stand against the powers of darkness. In Christ's name we pray. And all the church said, Amen.
Hello, this is Pastor Mark Robinette of Foundation Church. Thank you for taking the opportunity to listen to our audio sermons. We would love to hear from you if you have any comments, questions, or just to let us know how they served you. Go to our website, www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org, and send us a note. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to serve you.